When bond yields are rising and inflation starts to bubble, stocks feel frothy. You can start to smell some trouble. The economy's healing. That's a good thing, right? Stocks should keep rising. I got to keep my portfolio tight. Yo, nothing lasts forever. Stocks move in cycles. You got to shift gears like you're on a bicycle. Assets rise and assets fall. But if you stay balanced through it all, you have a good chance of winning and avoiding the market stress. So just keep listening to the Investopedia Express. If it feels like it's getting a little bit warmer, that's because it is. It's not just outside where winter is melting and the birds are coming back. It's right here inside the U.S. Treasury market where the yield on the 10-year Treasury topped a one-year high of 1.6% last week, sending stocks into the spin cycle. It's backed off a little to start the month of March, but the air feels different. The yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury surpassed the dividend yield for the S&P 500 last week, giving investors a real choice for the first time in over a year. Yields are rising as the belief in the economic recovery firms and investors dump those long bonds and mega cap tech giants in favor of cyclical stocks. The tech-heavy Nasdaq sank 5% last week, erasing the majority of its 2021 gains. The rotation into reopening stocks accelerated, with the Dow closing at an all-time high last week as airlines, energy, and financial stocks put up a February to remember. Consider the performance of some of the biggest ETFs that tracked those sectors in just the last month. The Jets ETF soared 22%. XLE, the energy ETF from State Street, 22.5%. XLF, State Street's bank ETF, up 10.5% and now higher than pre-great financial crisis highs, folks. Meme stocks were back in play last week as GameStop had another wild week, trading 150% higher in just five days on news that the CFO was ousted. That's not normal, by the way. When the CFO gets ousted, that's usually not what happens. The short interest on these popular stocks is not so short anymore, so the believers either really believe in them or more shoes are going to drop. The House of Representatives passed President Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus deal early Saturday morning. It's on its way to the United States Senate, which is split 50-50 between Republicans and Democrats. Amendments to the House's plan will be offered this week in the hopes of passing the bill in the next two weeks. An advisory panel to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention voted unanimously Sunday to recommend the use of Johnson & Johnson's single-shot COVID-19 vaccine for those 18 and older as the federal government prepares to ship out millions of doses this week. J&J said it plans to ship the vaccine, which contains five doses per vial at 36 to 46 degrees Fahrenheit, which is higher than the vaccines made by Pfizer and Moderna. Those need deep freezers. So let's add it all up. More government spending, more vaccines on the way, more belief in the global economic recovery. It's definitely getting warmer in here. Let's get set up for the week ahead. Zoom Video and Neo are expected to report earnings on Monday. Retailers, including Target, Costco, Dollar Tree, and Kohl's also report this week. And retail sales and consumer spending have been strong. It's been a rough reception, though, for companies reporting earnings results this season. Over the past three months, companies reporting earnings have seen their worst one-day share price reactions in a decade. That's according to our friends at Bespoke. Ironically, more than 80% of the companies reporting results from the S&P 500 have beaten analyst estimates. Great expectations, or have investors priced in all that good news? Probably a little bit of both. The oil market could be a little jumpy as OPEC Plus holds a committee meeting this week, followed by the main decision-making gathering on March 4th. OPEC is expected to make a decision on production quotas that would likely take effect in April. Remember, they've cut production quota to boost price, and now that prices are rising, we'll see what OPEC plans to do. 
The U.S. jobs report for February drops on Friday, and economists are forecasting non-farm payrolls growth of 225,000 from an increase of only 49,000 in January. We're nearly one year from the official declaration of the pandemic, and 19 million Americans are receiving some form of unemployment insurance, and that's about to get extended all the way to September. Another wave of worry has crashed on the shores of the stock market. At least, that's what financial media would lead you to believe. But there's a whole new set of dynamics for investors to reckon with that have been building for months. Interest rates are rising. You can see it in government bonds where the yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury finally topped the dividend yield for the S&P 500. There are worries about inflation. There are worries about meme stocks and day trading toppling the market. There are worries about stocks feeling frothy. So much anxiety. And when I need relief, I hit up Kenny Palkari of Case Capital Advisors, a former floor broker on the New York Stock Exchange who has spent his life analyzing the markets and making sense of them for people like us. Welcome to The Express, Kenny. Thanks for having me, Caleb. It's always a pleasure. So U.S. markets were only down about 2 to 3% from the all-time highs, and we hit those highs last week and the week before. But you'd think we were in the middle of a bear market if you read some of the headlines out there, guilty as charged. But give us some perspective, especially for the individual long-term investor on the recent sell-off from where you sit. It's so interesting because you're right. The way it makes it sound is as if we're in the depths of despair. But like you said, the Dow is only off, I think, 1% from its high. The S&P is down 3% from its high. NASDAQ is the only one that's suffered the most. It was off 8.5% at one point. And that makes a lot of sense when you start to talk about the nervousness, right? Look, the interesting part about it is we've been talking about What's going to happen as the economy comes out of this? And everyone's expecting a strong economy. All the macro data points point to a strong economy. And so an uptick in 10-year rates should not necessarily concern people, partly because it's not like they're unknown. We know that they're coming and we've been talking about. I think what people need to be concerned about, or at least what the market's concerned about, is the pace at which those rates have been rising. And the pace at which they rise is going to determine the depth of how the market reacts and reprices, right? Because as rates rise, the market will reprice. It has to. Last week, when yields pierced 1.5%, you know, now it's challenging the S&P 500 dividend yield. And so therefore, it's going to cause some people to rethink where they want to put at least some of their money, which causes then that reaction to cease. So I would reach out and say to people, the last thing you want to do is get panicky. There's no reason to get panicky. First of all, if you believe in the economy, you believe in the recovery, and you think the second half of the year is going to be better, which I do, I would look at this recent volatility as an opportunity to kind of look at your portfolio, see the names you like, see the names that have been artificially dislocated because of nervousness, not because the story has fundamentally changed. That's a whole different conversation. If the story is fundamentally changed, then there's another conversation about should we own it, should we not own it. But if the story is still the same and they're artificially dislocated because you know there's this nervousness, suddenly rates surge a little bit and all of a sudden the market sells up, that's a perfect opportunity for the long-term investor to take advantage. Now, if you're a day trader, from day to day, it doesn't make a difference. You're going to trade around what the noise is that day. I'm assuming you and I right now are talking more about the retail investor that's trying to build a portfolio and create an investment portfolio that's going to that's going to grow over time and generate wealth for a lifetime. 
Absolutely. And that's who we are talking about. But I want to harken back to something you said. It's the pace at which rates are rising. But in general, Kenny, to me, it seems like everything's moving at a much faster pace. Sentiment shifts more quickly. We went into the fastest bear market in history. We came out of it at the fastest rate in history. Rates are rising fast. Inflation's popping around commodities very quickly. Is that a result of just information flow? Or is that because we're coming out of a really steep pandemic-induced recession? And that's what happens when you throw $3 trillion at a problem. Well, so I think it's kind of a combination of all that. First of all, I think that the flow of information is just tremendous. Everywhere you go, you're getting hit with information, whether it's on Twitter or Instagram or on the internet or on TV or on the radio or someone's calling you up or someone's sending you a text message. The flow of information that's happening is really tremendous. That's number one. Number two, a year ago when we got hit, when the world got hit with this pandemic and then we saw markets collapse because they shut economies and whole countries down, that reaction was right. I mean, the reaction to, to, for the market to sell up was right. But then there was a sense that it was overdone. And as we started to talk about it, and then people started to, you know, kind of dip their feet back in the water, feel a little bit more comfortable. It's been a tough year for sure. But the rebound that we've seen is absolutely, I think, pinned to Fed reaction, ECB reaction, Bank of England reaction, even the People's Bank of China's reaction, right? And all the money and the stimulus that not only the central banks have thrown at it, but that governments around the world have, you know, tried to come together in their own countries and and stimulate the economy and help people through this. I think that's also a direct result. So I think, you, you know, there's not just a single reason why everything moves fast. The other thing is, look, we talk about it all the time, is the technology that is now at your fingertips, whether it's in your phone or on your laptop or on your iPad or on your computer, allows people to not only get the information, but then react to it. They can react to it almost instantaneously. And if you have a brokerage account on your phone, wherever you are, you have access to it. And so therefore, the speed at which stuff happens, especially in the investment world, is only, in my mind, is only going to continue to increase because people have more and more access and the accessibility gets faster and faster and faster. You often comment in your daily note, which is a must read for anyone that just wants to keep learning, but also get a great recipe. And I'm going to hit you up for one at the end of this. But you comment a lot because you were a floor broker for 30 years on the stock exchange at the New York Stock Exchange. You saw technology come on. You saw the rise of algorithmic trading. You saw how you know these fast trades are happening in milliseconds where billions of dollars are being moved around. There's that. And then there's the fact that what you just mentioned, which is individuals like me and you can trade this market extremely quickly right now. So when you add those things together, you got the machines and then you got us with the machines. That just makes things move a little faster. It makes everything move faster. And look, institutions are trading electronically all day long. The time when the trading desk would call the clerk on the floor, who would then call the broker, who would then walk out to the crowd, who would then have a conversation. All that took time and so therefore kind of controlled the pace. Now, all of that is gone. There are no more humans in the process. The portfolio manager now at the account enters his order into his computer directly either into a Goldman system, a Bank of America system, a JP Morgan system, a CS First Austin system, whatever. And it immediately gets shot out into the market. And you know as well as I do that the market is no longer just the New York Stock Exchange, right? There are now 11 exchanges that trade everything, plus all the 50 or 60 alternative venues where the systems can trade, not even the people, because they get routed there via the system. And so it has been amazing to watch for sure, but the sword cuts both ways. When the market's going up, nobody seems to mind. But when the market comes under pressure and it happens so fast and the downdrafts are so violent that people all of a sudden go, what just happened? 
And so I think you have to understand that. I think most people do understand that. I think the people that don't understand that either need to certainly educate themselves or go on Investopedia, find the answers to questions you have, or call your financial advisor. Call me up and have a conversation. Let me, let me and others like me help you through it. Now that we are in it and you and I are watching it, the sector rotation that's been happening, if I may geek out a little bit, when we see that technology was the big leader in the stay-at-home stocks in 2020, obviously, since we were locked down, that's all shifted as the economy's improved. Bond yields are improving because the economy's improving. That's a good thing. But we were in this period, you know, last week and the week before, where almost all asset classes were rising, except there was rotation. What are you seeing? Where's the the money flow moving now, Kenny, which tells you where investors are sort of placing their long-term bets? So I'm seeing the money flow move into sectors that clearly are set up to benefit in the continued recovery. So things that, you know, were undervalued and by some accounts remain undervalued, financial stocks, industrial names, because as the world comes out of this is going to be, and there's this global recovery, industrial stocks will do well. Transportation stocks will do well. Manufacturing will do well. And so therefore, when you think about it, and last week in one of my notes, I wrote about this, you know, when you talk about Dow theory, how the Dow industrials and the Dow transports, and they confirm the move with each other. Well, it's interesting because I was trying to explain the theory in my note. And when you talk about Dow industrials and manufacturing, when countries start remanufacturing and manufacturing increases, all those products that they've manufactured need to be moved around the country and the world. And so therefore, that's where the transportation names come in. So when you see both transportation names and industrial names moving in tandem like that, that suggests that the underlying economy is getting stronger. And so therefore, people will move money into those sectors that should benefit. Look, there's no way I would ever tell anyone to get rid of tech names. When people go, oh my God, the tech stock's going to sell off. You're right, they are going to sell off. But look how they have performed. They've absolutely blown it out of the water. So these people go, oh my God, NASDAQ's down 7.5%. It was up 42% last year. Put it in perspective. It, you know, If you just get in on Monday, and then you're down 8%. Okay, I hear you. You feel a little bit bad. But if you've had positions in tech stocks for a year or two years or three years, there's no reason you should be having a nervous breakdown at all. Absolutely not. You, you'll you never see, well, I should never say never, but you may never see years like that we've seen in the last two for tech stocks, up like 40%. Correct. So friends like Josh Brown and, and JC Press, they always say that you know maybe today's transports are the semiconductors because they're moving information around and we're an information economy, not a, you know, not moving cement around like we used to. That is true when it moves information around. But when manufacturing heats up and we're actually manufacturing products, those products still need to be moved around, right? And so as as trucks move in, and I don't think we're moving trucks and airplanes and ships with solar power just yet. So then you have to think about the demand for energy, right? And energy has been I hate to use this word, but it's been dead money for a while. It is suddenly picking its head up, right? And it has been for the last three or four months. So, Kenny, we were talking about yields are rising for good reason. The economy is improving by all measures, maybe except for the labor market, which is a little slow and it's going to be. The economy is improving here in the U.S. and around the world. Inflation's rising, though the Fed says they have that under control. Of the things that we maybe we don't think about, or you, you might be worrying about, is there anything out there that you're like, this could end up turning into a thing where I, it might cause me to be concerned? What's worrying you a little bit or even a lot that, we're, that may not be headlines right now? It's part of the headlines, but it's getting lost because they're trying to talk it down. I am very concerned that after a decade of near low interest rates and then this last year and a half with COVID, 
all the stimulus that they've been pumping into the system and that they're going to continue to pump. Friday, they voted on on the stimulus package, right? So we'll see what happens. But one way or the other, I'm concerned that inflation is going to rear its ugly head and then the Fed's going to be behind the eight ball versus in front of it. Look, they've already said, we're going to let it run a little bit hot. Okay, let's define what a little bit hot is and let's define how long we're going to run that way. Because listen, I was 20 years old in 1980 when interest rates were 21% and inflation was 13% and unemployment was 10%. My first mortgage was 15.5% on $196,000. It cost me $2,500 a month to support that house. Today, you could have a mortgage for $700,000 and essentially would have the same payment. And what I'm afraid of is that inflation is going to rear its ugly head. And this is where I get a little bit cautious and a little bit kind of negative because I don't, I think we're in unprecedented territory. And I don't think that anybody can accurately say, oh, yeah, we got this one handled. Don't worry about it. We've never been here before. This is all new to everybody. And so I'm just afraid that that's what's going to happen is that inflation is going to start to run rampant, and then it's going to be a different story for sure. You're right. And we've never seen this before. At the same time, inflation's still around 2%, been there for 20-odd years, hasn't moved, and the Fed does say it has it under control. But Okay. We've never thrown three, four trillion dollars at a pandemic either. I also understand the world is a different place. This, you know, now technology is disrupted and changed the world. So I get the fact that people go, it's a different economy. Yes, it is. But inflation is inflation. And with all the money they've thrown at it and all the stimulus they've thrown at it, my sense is we're going to wake up one day and boom, it's going to hit us in the face and then it's going to get out of control. And the Fed is going to start raising rates by full percentage points and not a quarter of 1%. And that's already causing people to have a nervous breakdown. Right. And they haven't raised anything and promised to keep them low for years and we're freaking out. So right. you know, the wall of worry will always be there for investors. But the, the long term, you know, the tortoise in the race here will probably win if you just keep your cool. One thing I love about your notes every day, Kenny, is first of all, they put things in great perspective like you've been doing here. But you always attach a great recipe on the bottom of it. You're a great cook. You love to cook. You have a passion for it. What should we make for dinner tonight or this week? What's on your mind and what wine should we pair it with? Because you're so good at that. So listen, I featured a recipe a couple of weeks ago and it's a great, it's simple, but it's so good. And I actually made it last night uh, and I put it over Penny and not Linguini. You could do it over either, but actually putting it over Penny was great. It's called Linguini Tricolore. So it's three colors, right? So you've got roasted cherry tomatoes, capers, calamata olives, garlic, Parmesan cheese and breadcrumbs, and then you have the pasta. So what you do is on a big, on a roasting pan, slice up some really sweet cherry tomatoes, slice them just in half, lay them out in the roasting pan, add the Kalamata olives that you've sliced in half, add the capers, chop up some garlic, add the garlic in there, put them on a 400 degree oven, let them roast for about 20 minutes, pull it out on top of that. Now add Parmesan cheese and breadcrumbs, not a ton, but just enough that you're covering it, right? Put it back in the oven and let it roast a little bit longer. Boil the pasta. When the pasta comes out, strain it, saving a mug full of the pasta water. Don't throw it all the way. Always save a mug full of pasta water. And then mix. Take the tomatoes out of the oven. Mix it with the pasta. You could add a little bit of pasta water just to keep it moist and serve it in a big bowl. And then you should make garlic bread on the side. You should always have garlic bread. It was so delicious last night. I should actually send you the picture. But uh, we paired that with uh, Brunello di Montalcino, which was a nice, hearty red wine, which was really delicious. It was perfect. And that recipe you can find on my note. But it honestly, it takes you probably 15 minutes to get it all prepared on the roasting pan and put it in the oven. Once you put it in the oven, the whole thing is 
20 minutes from there. By the time you boil the pasta, take it out, mix it, it's all done. And it is so delicious. Oh, and you had to throw the Brunello on top, which is one of the great, one of the great wines of Italy. Top shelf. You could pair a lot with that, right? If you want something a little bit lighter, you could go with the Pinot Noir. I happen to like Brunello di Montalcino, so therefore that's kind of one of my go-tos. Yeah, of course. It's one of the finer wines out there, and it's delicious, and that would go well with, with a bowl of cereal, but that dish you just <laughs> that dish you just recommended sounds amazing, and that would go great with, with, with anything. So When I tell you that dish is so good, and the other thing you should do is the Kalamata olives, if you get them in the jar, they're in juice, right? Their own juice. You should save a little bit of that juice and you add it to the, after you cook it, add it to the pasta, and it takes on just a little bit more of that, that flavor. It is so delicious. Make sure you have plenty of cheese. Oh, cheese. I, I can never have enough cheese. And, the, and that extra little, that mug of water that you take from the pasta water to throw into the sauce, that's everything. I've been doing that since I read your first note, and it has changed my relationship with pasta and Yeah, sauce yeah. You should always use the pasta water that you boil it in, A, because it's got the gluten in it, right? And it's got the flavor in it. But you should always use that. Always make a mug full of water, whether you use it or not, because if the pasta dries up a little bit, if it sucks up the sauce, you add a little bit of the pasta water and it moistens it up again and makes it great. Tremendous idea. Tremendous recipe. Kenny Paul Carey, so good to see you. Thank you for the recipe and for your always sound advice. You make me feel better whether you're teaching me a recipe or telling me how to interpret the markets. And thanks for being such a good friend to Investopedia. It's always a pleasure. I'll be happy to come anytime you want me. It's terminology time. Time for us to smarten up with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us courtesy of Holly in the great city of Detroit, Michigan. What's up, D-Town? Holly suggests convexity for this week's term, and I'm going to be honest, I had to look that one up, but I like that. And I like this suggestion because it's tied right into what's happening with treasury yields and the anxiety they're throwing into the equity market. So what is convexity? Well, according to my favorite website, convexity is a measure of the curvature or the degree of the curve in the relationship between bond prices and bond yields. Convexity demonstrates how the duration of a bond changes as the interest rate changes. Portfolio managers will use convexity as a risk management tool to measure and manage the portfolio's exposure to interest rate risk. As convexity increases, the systemic risk to which the portfolio is exposed also increases. Good suggestion, Holly. I got a pair of Investopedia socks heading your way. We're going to let the great Charlie Munger lead us out this week. The 99-year-old was full of the usual straight talk and wisdom at the Daily Journal's annual meeting, courtesy of Yahoo Finance. Munger's the chairman of the Daily Journal in addition to serving as the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway. Here's Munger on his definition of value investing. Value investing, the way I regard it, will never go out of style because value investing, the way I conceive it, is, is always wanting to get more value than you pay for when you buy a stock. And, and that approach will never go out of style. Some people think that value investing is you chase companies which have a lot of cash and they're in a lousy business or something. But I don't define that as value investing. I think all good investing is value investing. It's just that some people look for values in strong companies and some look for values in weak companies. But, but every value investor tries to get more value than he pays for. And may you always get back more than what you paid for. And here's to Charlie telling it like it is. March is Women's History Month here in the U.S. They should get more than one, but we'll seize the moment and we'll wish Jane Frazier well as she takes over as the chief executive officer of Citibank today, the first woman to ever lead a major U.S. bank making history. It's about time. Go get them, Jane. 
Our special thanks to Kenny Paul Carey for joining the show and for dropping his recipe for pasta tricolore on us. I don't know about you, but I'm definitely making it this week. Buon appetito e ci parliamo la prossima settimana. Tutti a bordo. 